All right, good morning, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Numbers 28, we'll see how far we get. We'll be doing at least three chapters today. Um, We'll go over 28 pretty quickly. I think I spooked everybody with my emails and Facebook posts about the ice. It's not nearly as bad as it was. Yesterday we came in for prayer, um, and Jenny and I were like, whoa, it was just ice everywhere. Uh, The McBrides tried to get here, and they got stuck in between on Dewey there, uh, or 16th Street. Um, Couldn't get up either way, and they had to park their car at the Kingdom Hall, of all places. (laughs) I said... I said, did you block their driveway at least when you left it there? Anyway, um, it was bad. And then it's fine today, so I'm sorry I scared everybody or warned of death at church, you know. All right, uh, sign-up sheet for the women's luncheon is out there. Don't forget, grab a, grab a flyer and you can sign your name up so we know how many to expect as far as table set up and as far as food goes. We want to make sure we have a good count on that. So that's out there, and then... Uh, that's it, really. Um, we've got the, uh, the directories out there if you want to correct that. I think this will be the last week that it's out, so correct your names or addresses or phone numbers or emails or whatever you need to correct. And if you, need, or you want to be added to it, fill out a form and put it in the box, and we'll make sure you get added to that. All right. Numbers 28. Uh, God goes over the offerings again. Now, we've gone through this, and that's why I said I'm going to go over this quickly because this is all repetitive. Um, in just chapter 28. Um, But why is he doing it again? If he's already told them, why is he doing it? And I think that's important to remember that they're a new generation coming into the promised land. The old generation, although probably passed on all the information to the younger folks about it, um, he wants to say, look, this is it. Okay, we're going to start again. It's a a new beginning here. Uh, So I'm going to tell you again what I want to see from you. And these are the offerings I want you to offer up. Now, The second thing I want you to remember is that the offerings are all fulfilled in Christ. So every one of these has a specific correlation to what Christ has done for us. Um, And so as we go through this, the first one in in, uh, 1 through verse 8 is the daily offerings. Twice a day they would offer up a sacrifice. This means there would be a continual smoke rising from the center of the camp, from from wherever the temple was or the tabernacle was, there was this offering going up. And that's Christ for us. He is constantly making intercession for us, constantly our intercessor. He is the only intercessor between God and man, and he is constantly doing that, and that's daily. And so anytime anybody would look to the center of the camp, that would always be a reminder to them. Even if they'd had the worst day, it would catch their eye to see that smoke rising up. You'd be like, yeah. Or if there was a good wind blowing, that smell would be coming off and permeating the camp you know, to let everybody, you know, you know, you can tell when your neighbors are burning leaves, and sometimes that's a good thing, unless it's the dirks. When we burn leaves, we burn leaves, and we, they got to shut their windows when we do it. But for these guys, it was a beautiful smell. It was a nice thing, you know, um, and a reminder that God is present, and that God is for you, not against you. And then more importantly, God is with you, you know, in these things. And so that's what these daily sacrifices were. The second set of sacrifices are the Sabbath offerings. On Saturday, the day of rest, they would offer up another sacrifice besides the daily sacrifices. Those were seven days a week. They would add this one, the Sabbath offering, to remind people this is, the, this is a day of rest. Not just in the morning, not just in the evening, but right in the middle there, they would have that sacrifice coming up and that Christ has given us our rest. He's He's our intercessor daily, but he's also given us that rest from working for salvation. It's no longer 
my sins that are keeping me from going to heaven, Christ has fulfilled all things so that I have righteousness, His righteousness imputed to me. Um, and so that day of rest is so important for them. The monthly offerings there, verses 11 through 15. Um, new beginnings, the next month, that's why it calls it that. At the beginning of your months, um, we're moving forward, you know. Uh, sometimes as I get older, I'm, I'm not sure if it's for everybody, but it seems like time is going faster than it used to. When I was a kid, summers lasted forever. I loved it. You know, you had three or four months, three months. Now I think it's what you get two weeks off for summer. I'm kidding. But they, they, poor kids, man, they don't even get a break. Um, but man, those three months of hot sunshine and running out there and doing whatever you were doing the day before and finishing the project, whatever it was, you know, um, just great. Um, and the months, though, today seem to be going faster and faster. That's all I hear. I can't believe it's the 20th of February or whatever it is, you know. Um, things just keep moving ahead. These are new beginnings. We're moving forward. Um, we're marching through time. We're getting closer to Christ returning again, um, taking us home to be with Him, a reminder of, hey, we're another month closer. Kids would probably ask, Why are the, what are the daily offerings? Well, those are to remind us that God's always with us. What are the Sabbath offerings? God's given us rest. What are the monthly offerings? We're a month closer, you know, kind of thing. Oftentimes, these are opportunities to just teach kids. Offerings at Passover, that's verses 16 uh, through 25. The Passover lamb would be offered uh, once a year. This is an annual event. There's a couple of these, but this is the once a year one. To remind them that the, the angel of death passed over them. It didn't matter who was on the other side of the door in Egypt. Once the blood of the lamb was applied as God had prescribed, anybody on the other side of the door was protected from the angel of death. And that's the same for us today. Christ is our Passover lamb. He offers us forgiveness. He gives us the way, the prescription for us to avoid the angel of death, that death has no sting over us anymore. There is no, there is no hell waiting for us if we follow the prescription. And so we apply the blood of Jesus Christ to the doorposts of our heart, and we're protected and kept um, from the judgment that we deserve, but it doesn't come to us. Uh, it went to him. He's, he's, the, he's right in between us and the enemy. Um, and so um, he takes care of us. Verse 26, offerings at the Feast of Weeks. This is uh, to get them ready. The, uh, um, the Feast of Weeks, uh, no customary work was to be done. This is actually a day off. Um, uh, in verse 25, you shall present the burnt offerings, a sweet aroma to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs of their first year, and their grain offerings of fine flour. Um, they would get all that ready. Chapter 29. Now, this we're going to spend a little bit more time on. Um, the Feast of Trumpets. This is the beginning of the seventh month. All the things here in uh, chapter 29 are in the seventh month. Big month for them and for us. It's, it's April, basically. Their calendar doesn't quite match up with us, but this would be April, Easter time, sort of. You know, um, It depends on the year, but it's about Easter time. Um, and in the seventh month, they have several sacrifices and offerings and, and feasts that they would that they would do. And so it starts off with the Feast of Trumpets. They would blow these trumpets to announce this is the seventh month. You know, um, it's a good month. Um, a lot of days off. I, I just, I, I take notice of that. Um, you know, you spend your whole life, especially in America, that you just work constantly. That's just what you do. You work from sun up to sundown. You work every day of the week. There's nothing you do. You just work and you work and you work. And when you read this, you realize how many times God slows everybody down and says, no, I want you to take this time off. I don't want you to do any customary work. The essential work, you've got to feed the animals and water the animals, things like that. But 
I don't want you to do anything extra above and beyond what's absolutely necessary. You know, I don't want you to do any customary work. And this seventh month is one of those big months. They have a lot of time off. And that's a hard thing um, if you've grown up thinking that's how you have to be to take a day off and to not work. That it's okay to not work. That God wants you to take that time and to rest and enjoy. Um, this week I took Thursday and Friday and Saturday off. We had a, a skating thing up in Omaha. And we, needed to, we were going to just go Friday, but we decided to leave Thursday because of the ice and stuff that they were supposed to get up there. And we decided to spend the night in a hotel. Oh, man. You know, and we just had, and there's something about it. There's a, there's a day off at home, and then there's a day off away from home. And I don't know if you know the difference or not, but the day off at home is usually you're kind of looking around at the garage that needs to be straightened out, and you're looking at the laundry that needs to be folded. And there's just stuff that's just there on your day off. But when you go to a hotel, there ain't nothing to do but relax. You can't do anything. You can't help the maids. Can I help push your cart down the hall, you know? It's refreshing. More than you think, more than you know. God wants us to be refreshed. He didn't put us here just to work constantly. Yes, we are to work, but He does want us to have days off and times of refreshing and times of resting and to just be and enjoy each other. You know, um, we're not married so that we can have dual incomes. You know, we're married so that we can enjoy each other and be married and love each other, and spend time together, and do stuff, you know, once in a while. Yeah, we've got to work, but I didn't marry you so I could double my income kind of thing. And that's important to remember as we go through this, God gave the children of Israel a lot of days off. I don't know how many you're supposed to take off, or I'm supposed to take off, but you'll know it, and, and be comfortable with it, and be okay with it. Um, God gives us permission to have that time where you just go, you know. And we had, you know, two days and we drove back and Saturday we did come back and had a day off at home, which was all, you know, garage organization and all that stuff um, and laundry and cleaning and all that. But those two days away up in Omaha was really a blessing for us, you know, um, and you forget how much you need that stuff. So anyway, this is the announcement of the seventh month where there's a lot of days off here um, and it's nice. So they blow the trumpets and they don't do any customary work and they get ready for it and they offer up the sacrifices um, on the Day of Atonement, which is the, uh, the, the tenth day of this seventh month, that's verses 7 through 11, um, only the high priest would offer up these sacrifices. All the other sacrifices would be all the guys, you know, all the priests doing it. The high priest had some 34 animals that he needed that day to offer and sacrifice. He did all of the butchering, all of it. He did it all by himself. He could have no help. That is obviously symbolic. This Day of Atonement is the same um, it represents Christ, obviously, as our atoning sacrifice. And only our high priest, Jesus Christ, can offer up the sacrifice. We can't be a part of it. He calls us kings and priests, but we don't get to help in this. When it comes to atoning for sins, nothing I do can help anybody else or myself. It all has to be Christ. And so we see that symbolism here in verses 7 through 11, where all the sacrifices are done by the high priest, 34 animals. He was whooped by the end of the day, I bet, because he is just a man representing Christ. You get tired. On uh, verses 12 uh, through uh, verse 40, that's the rest of the chapter, is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is an awesome one. The kids like this one. They'd move outside of the house and camp in booths, they called them. Tabernacles, little tiny tents 
So it was a big camp out for the family, all the nation of Israel. I mean, they're already camping. It's, I guess you get into a smaller tent or something. Um, but this is only when they come into the promised land. Obviously, they don't, they don't tent camp outside their tent. Um, but this is when they come into the promised land, what they were supposed to do when they have their houses and everything. Don't forget this wilderness. Don't forget this time, why you were here, what happened. Not only how you got there because of your disobedience, but remember God's faithfulness even in that disobedience. How He provided you with the rock that provided water for you and the quail and the manna and everything that came that shouldn't have. How your shoes never wore out. And they should have after 40 years, you'd think. I, my shoes wear out every six months, it seems like. Anymore. Um, this is a reminder of God's faithfulness in the wilderness. And so I want you to do this. On the 15th day, this is five days after the Day of Atonement, I want you to take another week off here and more. And I don't want you to do any customary work. And I want you to get outside your house and take the kids. And in other parts of the Bible that talks about this feast, they tell them, I want you to teach your kids why, we're, why you're out here. Remind them of this, that God is faithful even in the wilderness. And uh, I don't know where you're at. I don't want to be too spiritual about it. But if you're in a wilderness time, if you feel like um, you're not in a permanent place right now in your life, some people go, you go through those transition periods. It's like, I don't know what to do next kind of thing. It's kind of a wilderness. God will be faithful. He's, he's, your, he's your Father in heaven. He loves you. He's going to provide for you. He takes care of you. And He wants you to know that. But He also wants you to do this wilderness time with your eyes on Him, reminded of Him, worshiping Him still, you know, um, and, and uh, giving Him honor and glory and thanksgiving for all the things you do have, not what you don't have. And that would be a time for this. Now, uh, along with this, they would um, offer the drink offerings and everything along this. And in John chapter 9, verse 7, this is one of those neat points in the Bible where Jesus' brothers were kind of saying, why don't you show yourself to everybody? If you're the Messiah, why don't you go you know, do this? You know, let everybody know. Nobody wants to, nobody does this. If you're the Messiah, tell somebody. You know, and that, they didn't understand that. And they have sort of probably old you know, brothers giving him a hard time. Um, a little bit. And so they went off to this feast, this feast right here, the Feast of Tabernacles. They'd go in Jerusalem. They'd spend seven days there, actually eight, but seven of them. Uh, on the staircase of the, of, the, of the temple there, they would take a big pitcher of water and fill it up every day, one every day for seven days, and they would pour it out on the stairs as the water would flow down the stairs, very symbolic, and they would be reminded of this wilderness time when the rock would provide water for them. And so they pour this big jar, and everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, and they're teaching their kids, why are they pouring water? Never seen anything like this. God was big into, you know, uh, word pictures for everybody to, to see, uh, just a big Sunday school class for God. And so he pours this water, and all the kids are looking, saying, you shouldn't be pouring water there. That's not the right thing to do. Well, let me tell you why I'm doing it, kids, to remind you of the water that God provided. But on the eighth day, on the eighth day, they bring up a jar that was empty, and they pour it, and there was nothing there. And that was to symbolize going into the promised land where the rock no longer needed to provide water for them. They had crossed the Jordan. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, no longer a need for that water to pour out, right? Well, Christ stands up. Jesus stands up in the middle after they pour out this empty jar. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come after me and drink freely. And he goes on to describe how he's the living water. He'll provide water for them that's living waters flow out of you in this uh, John chapter 9, verse 7. And everybody thought, and his brothers were like, oh, he did it. You know, oh, I can't believe he, he, you know, he made a fool of himself. 
No, he was showing him. No, I'm the one that takes you. Like Joshua, Yeshua is his name, and Jesus, that's his real name. You know, if, if you translate it all the way through, takes them across the Jordan River into the promised land. That's what Jesus is saying. That empty picture is me. That empty picture is me. I'm the one that's going to come into you and cause living waters to flow out of you. You know, rivers of living waters. And that's that scene. It's during this tabernacle uh, feast that Jesus does this in John chapter 9, verse 7. A neat, great, great story. Okay. Now, uh, chapter 30. Um, then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind, him, uh, bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so this is the vow, um, the law of vows, if you make a promise. Now, God's never asked them to make vows. This is something they were doing on their own. And he says, if you're going to do this, you need to keep it. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.5 declares it's better to, to not vow than to vow and not pay. In other words, you need to keep your word. But otherwise, just don't vow. Don't make those grand gestures because that's a lot of times all they are, just grand gestures. Oh God, if you get me out of this, I will forever and fill in the blank of whatever you promise God you're going to do. And then he gets you out of it and you're like, well, that was going to take a lot of time now and the rest of my life. Um, now that I'm out of this pickle that I got myself into, you know, and God got me out of. Um, don't make the vow. It's okay to just ask God to help you get out. What can you offer him? He doesn't need anything from us, you know. Oh, Dad, you know, <laughs> if you just do this one thing for me, I promise I'll do this, that, or the other. No, you won't. You'll forget to make your bed. You won't do it. It's okay. Um, don't make those promises. Just ask him. Any father who gets asked by his kid for an egg, does, does he give him a stone or a loaf of bread? Does he give him a stone? If he asks for an egg, does he give him a serpent? And he goes through all that. Just ask. Just ask the Lord. Um, don't, we don't need to make these grand gestures. It, it almost looks like we're magnanimous towards God. You know, Oh God, aren't you lucky to have me kind of thing? Because I'm promising you my whole life if you get me out of this. I'll be a priest. You know, if you, you know, I already made you a priest in Jesus. You, know, you, you can't do anything for me. And so they give you some vows. Look, if you're going to do this, boy, you better keep it. And there's a couple examples in the Bible of guys that just made some really dumb vows. I like it. He doesn't show us great examples of guys that made some really good vows. He made some examples of guys that made really bad vows. Um, Jephthah's one of them. I don't want to get into him. Um, I think that's his name. I don't remember. It starts with a J. One of those J guys. But the one I want to focus on is Saul. Saul made a vow. Um, a dumb one. He was scared to death of fighting against the Philistines, and they were encamped over here, and the Philistines were over there, and they were sitting there hemming and hawing about how to attack. And Jonathan, his son, and his armor bearer get excited, and they decide to go ahead and let's see what God will do, because it doesn't take God an army to wipe out anybody. Um, and so he and his armor bearer go up, and they kind of start creeping up the rocks, and, and they say, what are we, how do we know God's with us? He says, well, if, if they ask us to come up, then we'll know God's with us and, and we'll have victory. But if they say, we're going to come down to you, then we're going to head back to camp. We're going to run. Well, it turns out that the Philistines said, yeah, come on up here. We'll show you something. They said, yeah, God has delivered them into our hands. And they went up and they did. Started wiping out all the Philistines. And Saul sees this. He doesn't have binoculars, but let's pretend he does. He's looking over there and he sees the Philistines all falling. He says, what is happening? How are they falling? What's happening over there? And he calls for a head count. Who's here? Who's not here? 
Someone's over there fighting, and I didn't say they should fight, basically. They said, Jonathan's gone. Oh, that's exciting. So they got excited, and they go to battle, and they run, and they start chasing the Philistines away, but they weren't running from the Israeli army. They were running from God, wiping them out um, with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Well, they get in the middle of this fight, and, and this is when Saul, makes, Saul the king, Jonathan's dad, makes this silly vow. I'm going to kill anybody that eats or drinks until all the Philistines are dead. That was his way of motivating his troops, I guess. You can't eat until everybody's dead kind of thing. Well, Jonathan wasn't obviously there to hear that command. He's off fighting the Philistines. And so on his way back, he finds some honey, and he takes some, dips his rod in it, and he takes some of the honey, and he eats it. And it turns out, Saul finds out about it and says, well, I guess i got to kill my son. Is that kind of vow dumb? Of course, all the guys rose up and said, you're not going to kill Jonathan. We're not going to let that happen. And it didn't, but... Um, Dumb vows, you know, they're made in the flesh more often than not. You're not walking in the Spirit. I'm not walking in the Spirit when I make those promises to God. And so he gives us this law in chapter 30. If you're going to vow, you better keep it. Very important. Now, verse 31, or chapter 31. Um, Vengeance on the Midianites. Midianites, that's Barak and, and, and Balaam. Remember those guys? We learned about them earlier. Balaam got talked to by the donkey, and Barak was the one that hired him um, to come curse the children of Israel. Couldn't get them to fall, but did get them to fall, not from cursing, but from getting uh, the Midianite girls to go down and to get the guys and so on. You remember that. And, and, and they began to bow down to these other gods, Moloch, um, um, Moab, it's not Moloch, um, um, Baal, thank you, Baal. Um, they began to bow down to Baal. It doesn't matter, right? They're all, I don't know why I'm picky. They're all satanic. But um, to bow down to this Baal, and then God got mad, okay? And then we remember um, that the plague was going out through the land because God had said, I'm tired, you know, I'm, I'm mad that you guys did that, and the plague is going through. And, um, and so we had one of the guys come and thrust a javelin through him. That's that story. Well, they've come up on these folks, and God says, I want vengeance on them. We need, they need to pay for what they've done. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. The vengeance is coming from God, but it's also by God's command for the nation of Israel to do it. I want you to do this. Um, I want you to go in, and it's for you. Um, you were the ones that were duped. You were the ones that were corrected. Now you are the ones that are going to follow through and remove this from um, your face and from the land. I want them completely gone. This is practice almost on what they're going to be doing in the promised land when they get there. Um, I want you to utterly wipe out this sin. Now, this culture of the Midianites is important to understand. Uh, they were not just some people with some bad attributes. Uh, they were horrible, horrible society like animals. Um, bestiality was prevalent in this society because of the gods that they worshipped. Um, prostitution was prevalent. Offering up their kids as sacrifices was very prevalent in their society. I mean, it was just commonplace. Every family had done it. It was just a horrible, horrible group of people. So keep that in mind as God brings vengeance. And I don't want that, them, and that attitude, and that heart, and that idolatry to taint or hurt my kids, Okay. I don't want that infecting them. So Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to war. So just 12,000 folks are going. 
So there were recruited. So there, so there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to the war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eliezer the priest. That should ring a bell. Phinehas is the guy with the javelin, okay, that stopped it before. So he gets to lead this with Eliezer, his dad. Um, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. That's how they knew what to do and how to fight with the, with the sound of the trumpet. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of, the, of, of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Ebi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. He didn't last long, did he? He was when they got paid. He was the mercenary uh, missionary, we called him, uh, prophet there. Um, and he thought he did the right thing, and it was just greedy. Remember what his prayer was. I want to die with the righteous. I want to die with the righteous. Well, he doesn't. Um, he doesn't because he wasn't. And that's important. He, you don't get it just because you ask for it. You get it because of your character and how you walked. Um, you may want to go to heaven. I want to live forever with heaven, but I don't want Jesus Christ and I don't want to have to obey God. It doesn't happen. You've got to have him. You have to have Christ or you don't go to heaven. And this guy, even though he wanted to, was living like the devil, taught the children of Israel to worship the devil through the worship of Baal and other gods, and now he ends up getting his own. He dies with the people he sided with. That's how you know a lot about a person. I don't know what I think about that person. Who are their friends? Politically speaking, that's one of the reasons, that's one of my litmus tests when I vote. I say, well, I don't know this person very well. They're kind of new, but who do they know? Who do they hang out with? Who are their friends? Because that'll tell you a lot. There's going to be similar attributes. Um, they're not usually missionaries in those friendships. They're usually right along with them. And so that's the same case with this guy. Balaam died with his buddies because he didn't die with God or didn't side with God and he didn't side with the nation of Israel. Um, if he just walked away. But he went after greed. He went after the money. He kept going forward with it, even though God had tried to stop him several times. Um, and even though God did give him only blessings to give the people, he found a way to get that money. And he dies with the unrighteous. And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captive and their little ones and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts and they took all the spoil and all the booty uh, of man and beast. That's sin. <laughs> That's not what God asked them to do. And this is a tough part of Scripture, but I don't, you, know, you don't want to shy away from these things. They weren't supposed to take the women and children captive. They were supposed to wipe them all out. And this is going to be a common theme throughout. Every time they go fight up a new group of people, when they get to the promised land, they're supposed to utterly wipe out everything, including the livestock oftentimes. The gold and the silver and the bronze, fine, but everything breathing, everything living has been corrupted, tainted. It's all ruined. It needs to be wiped out. And that's a tough thing. You know, we have a strong children's ministry here. We love our kids. Who, who wouldn't, right? Everybody that reads this is like, oh, man, that's uncomfortable. That's awkward. They killed the little kids too, you know, or they were supposed to. How could a God do that? Well, that's why I gave you the understanding of where these folks came from and what they're like. What, what were these kids growing up in? What had they seen? What was in their hearts already? At what place, at what point 
does that stop growing and there's some transformation that takes place? In the New Testament, there is. Christ can come into any heart and change anybody. In the Old Testament, that's not happening. And I don't think we think about that. We have lots of cute Noah's Ark paintings up. And little cute Noah's Ark, you know, cutesy-cutesy in the nursery and all that. I don't know if we remember the other side of things. This isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't news. God utterly wiped out every living and breathing thing on the face of the earth with the flood. There are floating bodies everywhere, okay? Understand that. When God wants to eradicate sin, He wants us to eradicate sin. He doesn't want to leave anything left untouched. It's all tainted. Oh, can I, can I salvage that? I think it's interesting when you go to a fire that's taking place at a, at a structure or something, uh, maybe even a home, and you try to pick through the fire to try to find something salvageable, and you'll pick up silly things. I've seen people do it. They'll pick up things like a toaster. Dude, throw the toaster away. It's never going to work the same. It's never going to operate right. It's always going to stink. It's always going to remind you. It's, all, it's just ruined. It's destroyed. Now, mementos, maybe you could find a picture or something like that. But for the most part, it's just time to buy a new toaster. Now, I'm not meaning to relate these kids to toasters, but everything in this group, everything a part of this society is ruined. We have a funny attachment to this world. So when we read stuff like this, we think, oh, I wish they'd had a longer life. We're not thinking of eternity like God does. We don't think about purity. We don't think about holiness. We don't think about what comes after oftentimes. We want to have a beautiful, long, long, long life down here, and then we want to go to heaven and die in our sleep and have a long, long, you know, forever with God. That's how we think. But what if and I know God is good all the time. What if that was the best option for these kids because they were never going to get those images out of their head? Maybe they had been polluted and corrupted so much. If child sacrifice was the norm of the day, what does that do to a person, you know? Or does God take them home to be with Him, which is the ultimate end anyway? Does God save them from growing up with all that baggage, with all that stuff that they couldn't, or even worse yet, growing up to be adults that propagate more children and still secretly love Baal and have more kids for Baal and offer up secret child sacrifices in their own home. I don't think we think about what God's protected them from, you know. Either way, I don't want to put God, you know, words in God's mouth. They weren't supposed to do that. Verse 12, um, then they brought the captives and the booty, that's what they called all the stuff, the spoil, to Moses to Eliezer the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. Now, understand, this parade of people includes the women that went into the tents with the guys of Israel. Here come the women again, dressed probably like they were, just without the men. From God's perspective, you are bringing into the heart of my camp exactly what caused this to take place. The exact reason I had to start wiping out through a plague, all the people that had come against me because they wanted to worship Baal instead and were giving him glory and honor. And you've brought them right into the heart. That disobedience, um, that not listening to God, not understanding maybe, um, not trusting him because you don't get it. I don't understand that. I'm not going to do it. Be careful. We always fall back on God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. He knows what He's doing. 
And when we stop and we think about it, as I tried to a little bit here this morning, you begin to see his wisdom in it. There's wisdom there. It's tough love. It's tough wisdom, but it's wisdom. He's going to save more lives than he took. He's going to protect more generations. God's thinking bigger than we are all the time. He's thinking of eternity and he sees everything. And Moses, uh, verse 13, Eliezer the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp, didn't let him even get in. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. He's reminding them, don't you know what we're fighting for? I posted on our website, uh, or on our Facebook page for Calvary Chapel, um, the Underground Church in China. Wonderful video. Actually, uh, Jeremy Carter posted it first, and I reposted it. Um, wonderful video if you get a chance to watch it. The, the, the Underground Church in China meeting in caves, and, and, and when they meet, a, a four-hour sermon is short. When, when guest speakers somehow sneak in and do it, they ask him, can you preach today? You know, and he says, well, when do you want me to preach? He goes, no, today. And then can you come back tomorrow and preach tomorrow? And if you don't mind, if you have time, can you back the third day and preach again? And he means from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. at night or 8 p.m. at night. He means all day, could you just preach? The people stay. He goes, you want me to take breaks? No, no, they'll wait. I'm sure there are bathroom breaks or whatever, whatever they needed, but they just preach. Because none of them have Bibles, because he just wants them to preach. He goes, what do you want me to preach on? Just from Genesis to Revelation, just preach. Just go through it for us. They don't have Bibles, you know. Um, I think we forget sometimes over here, sometimes. I'm not belittling America. This is where we're born. This is our mission field. This is where God's put us. No doubt about it. Makes one rich and adds no sorrow to it. But we've got to remember what we're fighting for here. Souls. Souls of men, souls of women, souls of children. That's what we're fighting for. That's what Moses is trying to remind these captains. We've sent you off to protect and to be obedient to God. This disobedience, whether that's not crossing the Jordan, whether that's complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt, or whether that's not doing what God asked you to do here, is all disobedience. And it has to be stopped. Now, therefore, he says, kill every male among the little ones. That's hard to read. And kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. As, and as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day. And on the seventh day, purify every garment, everything made of leather, every, everything woven of goat's hair, and every everything made of wood. In other words, it's all been covered and, and it's been tainted by blood. It's not pure to come in. But I want you to finish this. It's not a good deal. But it's their first time. It's going to get worse. As we see Joshua go in, and we're going to get to that book eventually, we're going to see them go in and do this repeatedly. Everything. Everything goes. It's a complete cleansing. It's a complete removal. Um, God knows what he's doing about it. And when God points something out in my life and something out in your life that needs to go, we have to have this same heart, this same desire. Oh, but that's just an innocent aspect of what I was doing. Why should I throw that out with this? It's tainted. 
that's going to remind you of this, or that's, uh, th- that's going to whatever. I don't know what it is, but wipe it out completely, all of it. Don't make any room, any provision for the flesh or any room for sin or Satan to have a foothold in your life. Remove it all. Just whack it out. God will restore. It's not going to suffer. God knows what He's doing. Get rid of it. Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to to battle, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean, and it shall be purified with the water of purification. But all that cannot endure the fire you shall put through water, uh, and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be cl- and be clean in the camp and the after I'm sorry and afterward you may come into the camp okay and then they divide the the they divide it all up now that's where we close today um, I want I want to read this one thing to you though before we close the last part of chapter 31 then the officers who were over the thousands of the army the captains of the thousands the captains of the hundreds came near to Moses and they said to Moses your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under our command and not a man of us is missing. Very rare. It's very rare. Um, even with, even if with God, that, I mean, that there would be some that didn't get taken out or tripped and fell on their own sword or something, something bad happened. We know that when we do training exercises in the military, depending on the size, you plan on two or three deaths for the training exercise alone because things happen. Even though we're not actually in combat, there's going to be two or three that die, and that's acceptable. That's okay. It's worth the training to do it. Not with God. Not here. God brought them in and God brought them out and not a man of us was missing. All that went into war for the Lord under God's command, at His command, survived. It goes right along with what we were sharing on Wednesday. That we can stand. We just want to stand at the end of it. That'll keep us standing. Sometimes it's a close call each and every day depending what kind of warfare you've been involved with spiritually. But stay standing at the end of the day. That's all that matters. Go to bed standing with God and lick your wounds. <laughs> Go to sleep and wake up for the next day. And these guys all come back. And God will do the same for us. He protects us. He watches out for us. He's going to get us there. He who is faithful, he who's begun a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. He's going to get us there. If I'm going to make a home for you, if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm coming back for you. I'm going to take you there. These are all promises from God. Now, we'll spend a lot more detail next week um, as we see the settling, uh, the tribes settling in, in chapter 32 there. And then we'll probably also do, well, we may only get through 32. So it'll be a much more detailed teaching next week, just so you know, and are prepared for that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the feasts that you gave the nation of Israel, promises and reminders to them of how you are faithful to provide and to take care of them throughout any situation. And uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for um, the victory you gave them in the battle. Um, And this is going to be the first of many. Um, And they came back, not a man of them lost, but they still weren't obedient. They need to get obedient. They will with Jericho. That'll be their first battle on the other side of the Jordan, but um, not a sword's going to be drawn on that. but Lord, help us to remember these things are all spiritual. Every sacrifice and every feast that was ever offered in the Old Testament is completed in you, Jesus. We don't have tabernacle feasts. We don't have feast of weeks. We don't have any of those things anymore. We have you. 
You've completed all of that, and we're so thankful for that. The simplicity of the gospel truly is simplicity. I mean, it's amazing what you've done. Um, and uh, the Old Testament shows us how complex your work at the cross was, how complete, how perfect, and how multifaceted it was. And yet all we need to know is you. And so, Lord, we've drawn near to you this morning. We've heard about you. We've heard your word. We have kept it in our hearts, hopefully. Um, now, we pray that we wouldn't sin against you. There's probably some conviction in some areas, God. Um, some thanksgiving that hasn't been given, that needs to be given. Um, some reliance and trust on your forgiveness and not our own works. Maybe that needs to be revived in our life. Or, Lord, maybe we just need to remove sin completely, not make any friends with it, not make any agreements with it, not try to salvage as much as we can, but to absolutely and totally destroy that sin in our lives. And so, God, we want to be obedient to you. Now help us to be, good, be doers of your word. As the last chapter ended, it said, and they did all that Moses had commanded, all that the Lord had shown Moses they did, and um, we want to be that way. Help us to be obedient kids to you. We don't want to second guess or, or question. We want to understand who you are and your love for us and your love for everybody else and help us to walk that way in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.